This is the film file. This is the film show for film geeks. And I'm Batman. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Batman. Uh, I'm no, Andy no you're not. <laughs> <laughs> I know Batman, sir, and you're no Batman. Okay. <laughs> Can't pull the wool over your eye. I've, I'm from Liverpool, so I've got to be Robin instead. Hey. Well, hey. well, you've got a connection, haven't you? As we will discuss later. Yeah. It's the only thing that broke me out of the movie. Uh, but I will discuss it when we talk about the Batman later, because, man, it, it feels like we've waited a long time for this film. Yeah, and We've got a and, lot to unpack. And now that it arrived, it was like, yeah, okay, finally, we can now start getting excited about Doctor Strange. Uh, but yeah, how's your week been? Um, it's been um, it's a been week. a bit stressful this week. It's just been a week. Um, nothing particularly outstanding, and and I think that's kind of the issue right now. There's been nothing particularly outstanding. <laughs> I did get to the cinema on your recommendation. I did get to see. Studio 666. I nearly called you and said, I'll, I'll drop a review in for last <laughs> week's show. But yeah. I thought, oh, yeah, by, by the Monday, I thought you would have edited it. But um, yeah, which yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, it was a proper horror film. Yeah. It was a comedy horror film, but it was a proper horror film. And uh, whether you like the Foo Fighters or not, there's there's a lot to take in. It's, it's a gory, squelchy horror movie. And done in the best possible way that horror and comedy work together. You have the comedy to relieve the fact that there's some really, really uh, visceral horror scenes in it. And you know what? The band came across really, really well. Especially Dave Grohl. He's, he's a natural on screen. Yeah. It's short little throwaway lines that had me absolutely rupturing in stitches. Such as, um, no, Taylor, sleep in your own bed. <laughs> yes. It's just, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you can enjoy it as a non-fan of the Foo Fighters, but fans of the Foo Fighters who've seen them in interviews and see how they interact with each other will get so much more as they played so well on their own um, public yes. personas. Uh, you know, Dave Grohl is like, I'm a fucking rock star. <laughs> <laughs> Marvellous. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I did very much. And it kind of reminded me of a, of a, a certain genre which are musicians appearing in genre films yeah uh i th i think we've got a a deep dive at some point <laughs> about about genre films just as as when we got sitcoms turned into yeah. movies and they always go on holiday i think there are musicians and horror films that go together really really well i'm looking at you kiss meets the phantom <laughs> <laughs> my week uh yeah I, as we said last week it was my birthday week last week so i was off work so uh have a guess at what i did throughout my week I had a whole week away from cinema, so what did I do? Uh, you watched Netflix. I watched lots of films. I watched 28 <laughs> films last week during my week off. Good Lord. <laughs> um, 28 films? Yeah, some some of the this year's Oscar nominations to fill that gap. I watched Studio 666 and uh, The Duke and then The Batman, obviously. But also then just padded it out with like some comfort films, such as Enchanted, which I absolutely adore that film. Every time I watch it, I fall in love with it all over again. <laughs> uh, but also, I, I started watching the Mad Max films, so we can talk about Mad Max later. Oh, good, because I watched them a couple of weeks back, <laughs> thinking that's like when we were going to do them. <laughs> so at least I'm prepped. Yeah, you, you should be well and truly prepped. 
<laughs> and I, I also I did try to also get Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven finished, um, at least on one playthrough, but got nowhere with that because I keep getting distracted in that game. That game is huge, absolutely huge. It's a uh, it's a game that I've used as reference in in the course that I'm teaching at the moment, which is, is one section is on video games, and that game crops up an awful lot because of its um, of its history. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a notoriety around the release of that that it wasn't a finished game when it got released. It was a mess. Uh, but the the version that's now been released on next-gen consoles, which I got on the PS5, is polished and plays so well. There's still glitches. There's still AI issues. There's still some things that you need to sort out. But generally, it's immersive. The storyline immerses you in, and that's what I love about it. Um, I have to, do you remember Shooting Stars? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I saw it live, actually. I saw oh, the live oh. version. Because uh, I, I, we realised yesterday at work that there's a few of us who are significantly older than the rest of the team because me and the boss were just quoting... We, for some reason, we just start, we just started to talk about Vic and Bob and I started quoting Uranu and Uvafu and we're just in stitches. And one <laughs> of the supervisors, who's significantly younger than the both of us, is just looking at us baffled as to what's going on. She's like, what on earth is this? I was like, it's shooting stars. It's like, what is that? It was like, oh man, you don't know shooting stars? No. Will any of this make sense if I watch it? No. <laughs> if you watch shooting stars, none of it will make sense, but it's hilarious. And so I found, found like a compilation on YouTube where like, there's some shooting stars. And as we're playing it, me and, me and the boss are just creasing with laughter. And she's just staring at it, blank face going, what is this? <laughs> so um, I, I think I'm going to be tracking down every episode of Shooting Stars over the next few weeks because I got home from work last night and just thought, I want to watch some more. I've forgotten how funny it was. Especially in the really heyday wanna... of um, Mark Lamar and um, Ulrika Johnson. Whatever happened to Mark Lamar? Yeah, he kind of just dropped off the radar. He, he, yeah, he, he had that really good run on Buzzcocks um, that he then left, which... It, it was left because it, it didn't fit in with his uh, current plans for tours and stuff, and they just dropped him, apparently. Uh, and then he just vanished off everything else, all panel shows. Come back, mm-hmm. Mark Lamar. We miss you. Yeah, where were you? Where are... Hashtag, where is Mark Lamar? <laughs> where are Mark Lamar? <laughs> <laughs> we are Mark Lamar. We're all Mark Lamar. Um, yeah, tell you what, if you really want to age yourself and see uh, a humour divide, show young people the young ones. Oh, yeah. Completely agree. Um, I've, I've got all them. Bought them a couple of years ago to revisit. And like me and Kerry both love the young ones. But could I get my kids to sit and watch it? No chance. No chance. They just look at it like I mean that 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 was something that I used to have to sneak to watch because my mum hated it. <laughs> my mum hated that anarchic humour. She thought it was like distasteful and like disgraceful and it shouldn't be allowed on TV. So I had to sneak into my room and watch it on a small. 12-inch black-and-white portable TV. <laughs> I like keeping a listen to hear footsteps coming up the stairs so I could quickly like spin the dial to change the channel. We had to spin dials to change channels in the past, kiddies. <laughs> stand up. Stand up and cross a room to do that. <laughs> it, it was amazing. It was like cracking a safe trying to get onto BBC2. It was like uh, three to the left, four to the right. <laughs> but and yeah. I wonder I, why we're the lost generation. <laughs> I mean, it did. It was a, an advanced portable tv set because it did have a headphone jack so i could put headphones in the only problem with that oh. is then i couldn't hear it if my mum was coming up the stairs so... <laughs> <laughs> they didn't think it through did they 
<laughs> but no, it's a, it, 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 I mean, I've, I've tried telling my kids that we used to have to get up to switch the TV over and they just look at me like I'm talking alien languages. <laughs> I know. Next week on the Old Folk Show, <laughs> we'll be talking about old money. We'll, we'll be reminiscing. Speaking of reminiscing, did you see the uh, edited episode 100 highlights when we talk about the history of the film file, how we got to know each other, but then the history of our cinemas that we've been through? It's funny you should say that, but I was watching it this very morning before we recorded and and a good job it was re- revisiting that and like watching through and it was just a great chat about cinemas and it just got me reminiscent that's why I, I went searching and found images of all the cinemas that we mentioned which was quite nice to slot in it just brought back all those memories flooding back of why i love film why we love cinemas and why we do what we do again just to reference the teaching i'm doing at the moment i've just started on a new bit of talking about the film industry and the one thing that, that sort of divided the continental divide between myself and young, the younger people, the students, yeah, um, you know, things like newspapers and magazines, things that they don't read anymore. But we all put our hands up that we all went to the cinema. That was the, the great leveler of everything that we do. The one thing that affects every generation. Yeah, I mean, my own kids, they love a trip to the cinema and it's like, some of their fondest memories are films that we've been to see. So it is something that is timeless and eternal. My mum was a huge cinema fan, which is why I became a cinema fan. It's carried across the century, basically. Yeah, you've got to start. You've got to thank your parents for for taking you, getting you interested, teaching you cinema etiquette. Yeah. You know, um, I don't think I'd be the person. Well, I, I know. It's not that I don't think. I know I wouldn't be the person I am without having gone to trips to the to the cinema to see things that initially my mum introduced me to. And that was mostly sort of Disney animated, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, yeah. genre-esque stuff um, that, that changed my life. I remember going, I remember my mum dropping me off the cinema when I was very young to see a Saturday morning. Do you remember the Doctor Who's movies? Yes. The Peter Cushing ones. I remember my mum dropping me at a cinema to watch that. And I can't have been any older than sort of eight and sat in the cinema on my own, watching it. And then when I came out, she was there waiting for me. And I, and I was just, I was just engaged. I, you know, I didn't need anything. I didn't need pampering. I didn't need, you know, guidance from a parent. I was just happy to be in that space as I still am. Doctor Who and the Daleks. At my happiest. Mm. What a film. Or was it Daleks Invasion Earth 2150? It was the, the first one. The um, first Doctor one. and the Daleks, yeah. Yeah, yeah mar- marvellous films. We should deep dive them. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think so. It's a we can't really deep. Well, we could deep dive at the TV series of Doctor Who, but I think focusing on those films because they get often neglected, they get overlooked because they're not considered part of the canon. Mm. But they're great examples of like how you transfer a TV series over to a film format for a wider audience. Yeah, maybe. And it gives, maybe me, in the gives me an excuse to revisit them. <laughs> Folks, let us know. Anyway, talking of shows, what's in this week's show? This week we'll be deep diving. The Mad Max Quadrilogy. Yep, all four of them. We've got reviews aplenty. Andy's going to be talking about... As well as the Batman, I also watched Night Ride, which landed on Netflix this week. And of course, we'll be reviewing together the Batman. The Batman. But before any of that, here's a little item that we like to call the news. So, before we get into the news... The box office. 
is Batman going to soar? So the box office this weekend in the US, we saw, well, of course, the Batman flew straight in at the top spot. It came in at 134 million opening weekend for the US alone. Uh, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we were saying that it was expected between 130 and 140. Spot on. Uncharted is in second place, taking another 11.1 million. It now puts the film on 100 million for US takings and 271 million worldwide. In third place, there's Channing Tatum's dog. Fourth place, Spider Man still holding in there, adding another 4.5 million to its US total, which is now up to 786 million. And Death on the Nile holds the fifth place with another 2.8 million. Here in the UK, Again, Batman debuts at the number one spot, taking 13.5 million for a three hour film. It, that's a pretty impressive total. And it's the highest opening of 2022 so far and the third highest opening post pandemic period uh, behind No Time to Die and Spider-Man No Way Home. Uncharted, after holding the top spot for the past three weeks, drops down to the second place. It's now took a total of 20.28 million in the UK. Sync 2 is still wowing audiences, taking its total so far to 30 million, keeping it in third place. The Duke steals fourth place and Death on the Nile takes fifth place. Uh, Batman Worldwide so far is tracking at around 258 million takings. A pretty successful opening weekend for the Caped Crusader. So it looks like a success story at the at the box office to say that only a year ago we were worried that the box office, that cinema was dead. You know, we had three massive blockbusters mm. uh, following each other, breaking box office records, establishing a new franchise. Well, potentially two new franchises. So yep. I'm guessing now all speculation is going to be What's the Batman sequel going to be about? And I've already seen bits and pieces. Yes, Robin's going to be included. I'm guessing there's no script at this stage. So it's anything that you read going, oh, this is the villain. No, it's not. It's purely, purely speculative. Um, I'm I'm guessing that, you know, they started some amount of pre-production, but. Well, the last word from Reeves is that he's got ideas of where the next couple of films could go, but nothing's been mapped out. So anything that you hear, like Lee says, is just pure speculation at the moment. Once we report it here, that's when you know it's official. Oh, yeah, I like that. Because that's what we do. That's what we do. We like to research things and dig down. We go past... I, I read through so much clickbait just to try to get to the source of information. You would not mm. believe the amount of nonsense that I filter through my head oh, before I we can. talk about the news here. <laughs> because speak, I can yeah, I mean, I've grown used to being able to work out what clickbait is. And if anyone ever references we got this covered, ignore that completely. That's just literally like put loads of ideas in a hat, pull one out at random, write a news report on it. But yeah, we, we, we like to try to... We will say if we're just speculating. If we're only just like coming up with ideas that we think it might do, we will specify... Well, what we think we'd like to see. Yeah. You know, a lot of it is what you think you want to see in in those movies and yeah, yeah i'd love to see the court of owls has been the, the next yeah. follow-up i'm not bothered about robin court of owls yeah. would be great but you know I, I know i don't want to see a joker movie yet no i I'd, I'd, I'd like to say because i'd like to see joker kept in the background as a presence in arkham mm. i would not like to see him be the main villain work up to like a you know third or fourth film is an arkham asylum breakout film that would yeah. work well Give a chance for some of the lesser developed villains 
to be played with in this new universe. We'll talk more about the Batman later without spoilers. Although I don't think there's a huge amount to spoil, to be honest with you. No, not really. But anyway, let's move on to other news. So the news worldwide, and we discussed it last week, was the situation with Russia and the Ukraine, which has now had an impact on the movie world in that pretty much all distributors have pulled releases from across the continent. Saw that. Universal have paused all their releases. Warners, Sony, Paramount and Disney are halting Russian distribution. Netflix have stated they they will decline to carry any state-run Russian channels on the service. Now, this is a key one because there's legislation coming in in Russia that every service that does entertainment has to show Russian state-run works. Basically, propaganda machine. So Netflix if this legislation goes through, will be legally obliged in Russia to carry any propaganda that the Russian government wants to give out. And they've declined. They've said that they're not going to do it, which means that if that goes through, Netflix will no longer distribute and have a service operating throughout Russia. We kind of mentioned this this week. I think the the cultural impact of not being in major sporting events or music or or movies and that sort of thing, that's that's what will help us through this and i know it seems trite and trivial in in the scheme of things but you're talking about somebody who runs a country based on ego yeah showing off russia to the rest of the world will damage it in in ways that that we can speculate and and i think you know the arts is is one way forward i mean i uh, for bands playing over there i know a few have pulled tours that sort of thing um i think just keep it up just keep it up i mean the the biggest problem is that yeah, and we don't want to go too much into the politics, but for the past decade, Putin has run the economy in Russia in such a way that it protects the country if the sanctions put against it. He's been building up to this. So all the like restrictions on trade and everything are not going to hurt the Russian economy at this point in time. But taking away the entertainment factor and like the in- inclusion in sports, etc., that the cultural aspect of the division there will impact on the people of Russia, who we know that there's a huge number who are opposing this invasion of Ukraine themselves because it's their their families, friends. They know people from the Ukraine. They don't see them as someone to declare war on. So if they can get more of the Russian people on their side, let's be honest, it won't be the first time that Russia's had a revolution. No, it's it's quite known for it. So um, it wouldn't surprise me if this is going to be the start of another Russian revolution. But anyway... Let's move on to something a little less political, and that's the Oscars. Oh, that's not very <laughs> less political, is it? Oh. <laughs> uh, the Oscar fan favourites that we spoke about last time have now been whittled down to a short list of 10 films. The list of films goes to highlight how internet hashtags kind of don't mean anything. The 10 that have made the cut are Army of the Ready? Dead, Cinderella, <laughs> okay. Dune, Malignant, okay. Minimata, mm-hmm. Power of the Dog. Sing 2, Spider-Man No Way Home, of course, that was getting in there, The Suicide Squad, and Tick, Tick, Boom. That's a diverse mix. Yeah. <laughs> um, Zack Snyder's Justice League was ineligible, like we said last week, and many of his supporters have seemingly turned support towards um, Army of the Dead. Johnny Depp's large fan base pumped up the Minimata, while James Gunn and DC fans teamed to boost The Suicide Squad. Uh, the inclusion of Cinderella, like we said last week, is a very well-organized online campaign. Um, and Malignant was the one that kind of came from nowhere. And it's it's been seen as the cool kids choice, as it's exactly the kind of film that doesn't get awards. 
those gonzo horrors have never been celebrated at the Oscars. So no. I think that one's a campaign to basically go, well, let's show the Oscars that people love this kind of stuff. It It is just showing that this whole like hashtag Oscar fan favorite idea is just stupid. They're trying to tap into like the current mentality of like Twitter, etc. But that's not what we want from award shows. No, it's awarded by by peers. And that's the way it should be. It's not like the MTV Awards, which needs interaction from fans. This is about peers respecting each other's work. Yeah. Um, on the subject of awards, the Screen Actors Guild Awards um, held their ceremony this past week. And the Apple TV Plus film Coda, which I have raved about on this show before, and Netflix's Squid Game, which I have still not got round to watching, no, were big me winners. Me neither. Uh, Coda took the top award of ensemble cast for a motion picture, and it deserves If you've not seen Coda yet, get it watched. It's funny you should say that, Andy, because uh, a, a fan of the show and a, and a trusted friend spoke to me yesterday about one of the most moving films that he'd seen, which was Coda. Yeah, it's a beautiful film and absolutely engrossing from start to finish. Thoroughly, thoroughly recommended. Um, but Will Smith uh, for King Richard and Jessica Chastain for The Eyes of Tammy Face, the acting honours. And Ariana DeBose for West Side Story and Troy Kutzor for Coda Brilliant. as supporting honours. Um, on TV, Succession, again, something that I've not got around to watching and I hear so much about. Got the top award of ensemble cast for the drama series. But Squid Game came out as a surprise to people as uh, the stars Lee Jung Jae and Young Hao Yeon took Best Actor and Actress. I also think there should be an award for you getting that right. When you, yeah, yeah. you mentioned those names. I I, I sat and practised this in a mirror for 14 <laughs> hours. Um, Ted Lasso took the win for Comedy Ensemble Cast and Yay. also Best Actor for Jason Sudeikis. And Gene Smart won for Hacks. I've not seen Hacks, but Gene Smart is phenomenal. She's, she's, she's a smart watch. Sorry. Uh, on the limited series front, Michael Keaton won for Dope Sick. And Kate Winslet won for Murder of East Town. Again, all these shows, this is the problem that I have with the streaming services now is there's too many shows and I get yeah. recommended pretty much all of these shows and I haven't got the time for them. Yeah, Severance and Dropout. Just being said, you've got to watch the, the Dropout and you've got to watch Severance. Yeah. I'll just find time. <laughs> yeah, we need another lockdown. Give us another six months lockdown and I'll catch up on all these shows. But <laughs> that's the things to be looking out for. If you're a fan of those shows, let us know what you think of them. We're always happy to hear from your thoughts. There's a White Men Can't Jump reboot, which is now cast, and I don't know who this person is, rapper Jack Harlow. Yep. Uh, I, I don't I don't know these 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 modern day rap stars. If it's not <laughs> Ice T, Ice Cube, yeah, I, I'm not here. Vanilla here. Ice, get, past give, the give ice. Give me Eric B and Rakim any day. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, if you do know Jack Harlow is, just one edition was all it took for Harlow to nab one of the lead roles originally played by Woody Harrelson in the original 1992 film. The iconic sports comedy followed, back in the day, Billy Hoyle, played by Harrelson, a man under pressure to earn some dollars from his wife, uh, played by Rosie Perez, and the mobsters he's indebted to. After pulling one over on fellow basketball hustler uh, Sydney, played by Wesley Snipes, the two joined forces to con players across the course of LA. This new version is being penned by Doug Hall and blackish writer Kenya Barris and will be directed by Cal Matic, whose uh, extensive experience in shooting music videos is also a director of another upcoming 90s remake, House Party. 
I enjoyed White Men Can't Jump. It was a bit of a, when it came out, it was one of those movies, those kind of must-see movies. I, I can't mm. imagine it stood the test of time too well. Harrelson was good, Snipes was good. But does it need a remake? Well, apparently so. I mean, does House Party need a remake? You see, yeah. that's an iconic film that I could just not bother with. Yeah. Kind of sticking close to music. And uh, the Weird Al story, biopic, has been revealing some shots of some of the cast over this past I saw week. this. Saw it. And we got to see Evan Rachel Wood as Madonna. Um, in her full 80s pop princess guise, which suggests that Like a Surgeon is going to be covered in the film. Now, for those who don't know the history of like Weird Al and his music, he does parodies of songs, but he always asks the artist involved, are they okay with it? And generally, he gets a thumbs up. He's always said that if he gets a, a strong no, he won't do it. And the only time that that backfired was when uh, he approached for doing Amish Paradise, the parody of Gangster's Paradise. And the studio label said, that's fine. But apparently Coolio had no involvement in that and he wasn't very happy. But Madonna, apparently with Like a Surgeon, actually helped him come up with the name of the song and the idea of what to be singing about. So she had a bit more involvement behind the scene. Uh, Evan Rachel Wood looks perfect as Madonna. I've seen the the Weird Al. Oh, yeah. uh, Daniel Radcliffe as Weird Al. Uh, Nails it nails it completely i'm so excited for this film i'm a big fan of weird al anyway i'm not expecting it to be a truthful rendition of his life story because it's weird al of course it's not going to be completely truthful Uh, rain wilson has also been added to the cast as dr demento the radio dj host who also was noted for his parodies of um, musical acts and on the subject of madonna there's also a biopic about the music legend herself that is in the casting stage and the shortlist for the role has been narrowed down to Florence Pugh, Julia Garner, Alexa Demi, Odessa Young, and newcomer Emma Laird, along with musicians Bebe Rexa and Sky Ferreira. Okay. Interesting, because if you're going to look at Madonna's life, you've really just got to start with her just dogged determination to become a huge star. I mean, she apparently was so fixated on it that that's that's the story that you that you cover well the the era that they're going for is they're going to map through the 80s era of the singer ending with a iconic 1990 blonde ambition tour which is when she basically blew through the stratosphere the casting director carmen cuba said that it's they've spent several months whittling down with audition hopefuls being put through up to 11 hours per day choreography sessions and singing auditions with Madonna herself directly involved. There's not an official studio green light yet for filming, and it's expected that once casting for the lead is done, there will still be months of training for the role before they even think about starting to shoot. Um, It it will be co-written and directed by Madonna and Erin Cressida Wilson. It sounds it sounds interesting. I mean, there's some great names in there. I mean, I'd love to see Florence Pugh get it. Yeah, she's I great. do I do think that she's absolutely marvellous. But the rest of the names I wouldn't I wouldn't shy away from saying, you know what, each of them will bring something good to it. I remember once going to a, a dinner party thing and there was a game played which if you were going to be the feature of a biopic, who would play you and what part of your life would it cover? You don't have to answer now. Just have a think about it. Think about it at home as well. If you were going to be the story told of your life, who would play you? And at what portion of your life would be would be dramatised? Anyway, moving on. Uh, I think it's about time that West Side Story is celebrated as the best film that Steven Spielberg has done in a long time. Watched it again last night. Absolutely love it. Great cast, especially Ariana DeBose, who just leapt out in every scene that she was in anyway she's joined the cast of craven the hunter the sony spider-man spin-off yes she's going to be playing calypso i believe the voodoo okay. priestess 
who's the occasional partner and lover of Craven. Uh, we already know that Aaron Taylor Johnson is playing Craven. Uh, Fred Hershinger is going to be Chameleon. And Russell Crowe in an unnamed role that we are basically speculating is Daddy Craven. <laughs> because, <laughs> let's be honest, he would have been a great, like we've said before, he would have been a great Craven the Hunter Back 20 the years day. ago. So, so it makes sense for him to be the patriarch of the family. Because the film is going to focus around the Kravinov family and why they are the hunters that they are. Um, Alessandro Nivola from Many Saints in New York and Jurassic Park 3 has scored the role of the main villain, who we still don't know who that villain is. I'm kind of but, open on this one. Talking of which, Mobius finally opens, doesn't it, in a couple of weeks? Yeah, I kind of, I kind of keep forgetting. Opens that that's or unleashed? <laughs> I think, I think just dropped. Um, it's going to be the word that I'm going to be using. Yeah, I, 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 it's completely off everyone's radar. It's, it's like, like I suggested earlier. Is, yeah, at the end of the day, Batman has just come out, and so it's now, oh, we can get excited for Doctor Strange. Oh, there's Mobius be well before that. Oh, why are we not excited for that? Maybe we'll find out in a couple of weeks. Did you see the trailer this week for Cliff Beasts 6, The Battle for Everest? No, I did not, sir. Should I? Now, this this is brilliant because this is a trailer that landed that everyone went, what? I've not seen the other five Cliff Beasts films. What on earth are these? And why is there some big names in this? And it turns out that Cliff Beasts 6 is a fictional film within a film from Joe Dapato's next comedy, The Bubble. Okay. They released a full trailer for Cliff Beasts 6 with a release date of April the 1st. Brilliant. An early, an early April Fool's gag. Love it. Uh, the bubble itself will see a group of actors stuck inside a pandemic bubble while shooting a movie. That production is Cliff B6, in which humankind is threatened once again by dinosaur species. Uh, Karen Gillan, Fred Armisen, Maria Bakalova, Keegan-Michael Key, David Duchovny, Leslie Mann, Pedro Pascal, Peter Serafinowicz, Viadas, Rob Delaney, and Iris Apatow co-starring in the project. So that's what I mean about the names that are in it, that when this trailer for Cliff Beat 6 came up and you see these people, you're like, what's going on? Um, Apatow is directing, producing, and co-writing the script with Pam Brady. The April, April Fool's Day release date put on Cliff Beat 6 will probably be when the bubble gets released. Um, and the full trailer for the bubble is also now out there. Talking of trailer drops, uh, Brad Pitt battles assassins in David Leach's bullet train trailer. Oh, man. I thought that you'd like that one. Feed this into my eyes already. This looks amazing. <laughs> and Michael's Bay's The Ambulance drops this week as well. Uh, just get rid of my eyes for that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's been talk about the future of the Alien franchise for quite a while. And now, Fede Alvarez who gave us Evil Dead and Don't Breathe, has signed to write and direct a new standalone movie with Ridley Scott producing. Yeah, this caught me by surprise, came out of nowhere. Yep, this is planned as one of the Hulu premiere releases, uh, which will be Disney Star Plus in the UK. One of apparently 10 or more films each year the um, the Fox Studios will be, well, 20th Century Studios, as they're now referred to, will have exclusive to streaming, following in the footsteps of films such as Prey, the Predator film from Dan Trachtenberg, yeah. which is later this year. This part of the new strategy from the old studios, which will see all but a small few from 20th Century Studios go directly to Hulu and streaming and Star Plus. Studio president Steve Asbel has confirmed that a third Poirot film is in early stages of production. I imagine that will be a straight to streaming, given that... Yes, it's done okay, but it's not broken any box office records. Uh, this second I wonder film. if that'll be the mirror cracked. Well, they say the script is already completed and it's a post-war Venice and adapting one of the lesser-known books. Oh, okay, that is, it won't be the mirror cracked. So, interesting. <laughs> uh, there's a script for Free Guy 2 that's almost ready. That'll probably get a box office release because Free Guy did such great business. Uh, the initial draft for Wes Ball's new entry in the Planet of the Apes series is due. 
with plans to start shooting later this year, I think that might go straight to the streaming services because as great as those films were, again, they didn't break box offices. It's it's interesting that they're taking this diversion. That they're basically only saying there's two or three box office releases from the 20th Century Studios yeah. each year and 10 to 20 going straight to streaming. It's like Disney have said that the 20th Century Studios is the one that they're going to use to showcase the streaming side of it. It's, it's interesting because clearly for a long time, there's been speculation on another Alien film, yeah. especially in the wake of, uh, of Covenant not being particularly... Well, I'm going to use the word good because it wasn't particularly very good. <laughs> um, there was also talk for a long time about an Alien TV series. Now, is that still going? Do we know if that's still on? Because it was going to be brought to us by Noah Hawley, who brought us Fargo. So has that been dumped in favour of this? Apparently it's still, it's still going. The, the, the branching off the franchise into different directions. We, we could do with something to get into the meat of what the Alien franchise can deliver again. Because whether he, his hands were tied by studio interference, we don't know for definite. But Ridley Scott's last two entries into the franchise were underwhelming, to say the least. Yeah, to say the least. Uh, Will Smith and Michael B. Jordan have both signed up for a follow-up to I Am Legend, the 2007 film. Which is my next story, but go for it. Uh, well, given the ending of the film, I'm unsure what Smith's role is going to be. And the story details are under wraps. Are they going to be using that alternate ending that made its way onto the DVD releases? Because, uh, I mean, is it, is it much of a spoiler for a film that's 15 years old for me to say Go he died it. at the end? <laughs> and unless they're going to digitally de-age him and have it as flashbacks, he does look slightly older than what he did back in 2007. I don't, I don't, I don't think we need a sequel to I Am Legend. I would rather, and you know how much I love the book. I've mentioned many times on the show. I would rather they do a HBO Max series mm. and adapt the book in a way that is is the vision that that um, Ridley Scott had, one that's true to the story. Yeah. And you know, we talked about I Am Legend many times. For the first half of the movie, it's fantastic. Will Smith was great. The second half of the movie falls apart. But Will Smith was still fantastic for the majority of that film. So um, I'd rather see that. That's on my uh, speculation wish list. But I, I'm intrigued. I know there was a script. In fact, I think I even may have got the synopsis for it somewhere for an I Am Legend 2. Mm-hmm. But Michael B. Jordan, interesting. I'd rather see Michael B. Jordan go back into this speculative, dreamlike idea of a HBO Max version. Uh, Akiva Goldsman, who adapted the novel from Richard Matheson for the first film, is I'm out then. To You've got me. Second. I'm out. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, do you remember when Lindsay Lohan was a thing? Who? Yeah. Yeah, she was <laughs> for about 20 minutes. Yeah. Well, she's trying to make something of a comeback, hopefully, with two new features for Netflix. She's got the upcoming Falling for Christmas later this year. Because wow. if you're going to make a comeback, you might as well do a Christmas movie because everyone will watch a Christmas movie. Falling will see Lohan doing an overboard premise. She's a spoiled heiress who suffers a skiing accident and forgets all about her past life. Coming to her rescue after her amnesia episode is a handsome blue-collar lodge owner who nurses her back to health with the help of his daughter. Lohan's character soon gets a new perspective on life and becomes a better person. Of course she does. Unlike in real life. (laughs) She's signing deals with Netflix to try to stoke some flames of her career back again. There was a time when she showed such promise. Mean Girls. She was great in Mean Girls. There was the film Bobby, which was uh, directed by Emilio Estevez, and it was focusing on uh, Bobby Kennedy's assassination. And she was one of the side characters in it, and she showed such dramatic chops there. And such potential to really like exceed that because for a while she was the Disney Golden Girl. She was in those yeah. like cute little comedies, etc. And then she and became she had the a chance. celebrity princess, didn't she? And that's when it all went down. 
So I'd, I'd like to see a return to that and not a schlocky Christmas film. But hey, let's see what happens after she's done the schlocky Christmas film. Worse. She might get some more dramatic ones. Netflix have put some, you know, lower key actors into great dramatic roles in some serious films. So let's see where it goes with. Uh, sticking with Netflix, Snyder's The Rebel Moon has now added, added Rupert Friend and Stuart Martin to the cast. Yeah, I saw that one. Friend is going to play the tyrannical ruler that um, Sophia Boutella's character joins with a group of rebels to make a stand against. Filming is due to start in April. That'll be on the stars, the remake. That's all it is. <laughs> Sorry. Brad Pitt's Plan B production has now bordered the long ingestation Beetlejuice 2 project. Oh, really? I'd heard that it was happening again. Yeah. The script is still not written, but having... Brad Pitt behind the scenes now as producer has sparked more life into the long halted project and it's expected we'll start to see some momentum on it within the coming months. As long as Michael Keaton's back then, then count me in. Oh, definitely. I didn't see the tender bar, Judge Clooney's last film, but I did see the one before that, The Midnight Sky, which I liked. Yeah, it was, okay. uh, it was it was low key when I liked it. Yeah. Judge Clooney is already putting together his next drama and he's gearing up to make The Boys in the Boat. He's added Cobra Kai's Courtney Hengler to it. Based on the book by Daniel James Brown, it tells the triumphant underdog story of the University of Washington men's rowing team who stunned the world by winning gold at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. So, spoiler, they won. <laughs> uh, will it be a, a, a challenging underdog story that pays off in the end? I was having a quick, on a side note, I was having a discussion last night about underdog stories because uh, I saw the trailer for the excellent, uh, ex- excellent Mark Rylance in The Phantom of the Open. And The Phantom oh, yeah. of the Open, on paper, made me go, eh, not bothered. Watch the trailer. Mark Rylance won me over. Looks charming. It looks like one of those charming British underdog tales about a loser who doesn't actually win. And that's the difference between like the UK and the US. Every underdog story in the US has to finish with them winning and being champions. But the underdog stories that we love over here, they don't win, but we love them anyway. Except, spoiler, <laughs> because it is only 40 years old or something like that rocky <laughs> yeah because it wasn't about him winning no it was a, it was it was basically about him proving uh, however they then went on to make rocky 2 and had him win because uh, you have to have the underdog win in the end but no it, it, it's i mean if you've not seen the trailer for phantom of the open you're as much of a fan of mark rylance as i am get it watched yeah i am Get it watched. Okay, so a little bit of TV, as far as we know, but Phoebe Waller-Bridge, for the most part, has been working on either other people's projects, or she was down as one of the scriptwriters on the last James Bond movie. But after the success of Fleabag, everybody's wondering when she's going to be back on our screen. Anyway, it seems as though she is. She's involved in a brand new comedy, or is it a drama, that's going to appear on Amazon Prime. It's a mystery. No one knows at this stage anything about it. If it's half as good as Fleabag, count me in. Mm. Do you remember at one point she was going to star with Donald Glover in a Mr. and Mrs. Smith TV adaptation? Yeah. But apparently it fell apart down to the usual creative differences. Last bit of news that I've got is another one that I'll be excited because of who's behind the lens, in particular who the cinematographer is alongside this director. Sam Mendes has begun shooting on the Searchlight Pictures feature Empire of the Light which is set on the south coast of England with his usual collaborator, Roger Deakins. Oh, Deakins makes beautiful looking films. It does. 
It does. Uh, uh, they are works of art. They are beautiful. For those who uh, aren't sure what we're talking about, Skyfall 1917 in particular, they're the ones that you'll recognise. Uh, but Deakins, whenever you've watched a film and you've gone, wow, that looked amazing, Blade Runner 2049, Deakins' name has got to be somewhere in there. The film will be a love story set in and around a beautiful old cinema in the 1980s. And filming will unfold in Margate and along the Kent coastline throughout May. Names such as Olivia Coleman, Michael Ward, Colin Firth, Toby Jones, Crystal Clark, Tom Brook, Hannah Ronslow and Tanya Moody star in the film, which has been penned by Mendes himself and he's producing with Pippa Harris. And I'm in. I'm in because of those, all of those names involved. Yeah. And it's about it's about cinema in the 80s, fondness, memories and nostalgia. Yeah, count as in. Um, we've talked about... Do we need another streaming service? Well, ITV have announced a brand new streaming service <laughs> called ITVX. Is this going to be the one that finally falls? And finally, for this episode of the news, Oppenheimer. Can't go a week without announcing <laughs> new casting to Oppenheimer. The cast has now added Jason Clark and Louise Lombard. I don't think this film will ever be finished because they'll just keep on casting forever. <laughs> and that's this week's The News. <laughs> You're still listening to your favourite podcast on film. It is The Film File. And if you want to hear more about The Film File, can we just suggest that you head over to your favourite podcast platform, look for The Film File, hit the subscribe button, and remember, please, to leave a like. And yes, there's more. You want to see what we look like? You want to know more about the world of The Film File? Well, Andy always puts together a fantastic YouTube clip every week, which is worth checking out. Andy... If you want to know more about the film file, what can we do? Head on over to Twitter and follow us at Film File UK. Look for us on other social media platforms, just looking for Film File UK. Like Lee said, the YouTube channel, there's uh, unedited highlights from the show and usually a fair chunk of outtakes when I can find some really juicy <laughs> yeah. ones. Um, to just have fun Even with. some from this show, in fact. Might even oh, they'll, there was a show about two or three episodes ago when I get around to editing that one that the outtakes is going to be like about 40 minutes because we had a really, <laughs> really wacky week the other week. Uh, but it's it's a way to get to know. Yeah, it's a way to see more behind the scenes and why we do what we do. We do it because of you guys and we want you to get in touch with us in any way that you can on those social media platforms or drop us an email. Yes, an email. Podcast at filmfile.uk Anything that you want to talk to us about, films, TV, entertainment, media, likes, dislikes, we're open to anything. Any films that you want us to deep, deep dive into, anything that you think that we should watch that we, you, pro you probably think that we've never heard of, challenge us. Give us that challenge. Or if there's a film that you don't know the title of, but you have vague memories of, jot down all the details that you know, mainly up put our heads together, see if we can work out what they are. And it's now time for this week's Deep Dive. So this is a deep dive I thought we were doing about three weeks ago. <laughs> so I'm plenty studied up on this bad boy, or should I say series of bad boys. Mad Max, Australian post-apocalyptic action series created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy that all began with Mad Max back in 1979. In the future, cities will become deserts. Roads will become battlefields, and the hope of mankind will appear as a stranger. The Road Warrior. So Mad Max began in 1979 and starred, at that point, a very young 
Mel Gibson, who went on to play Max Rokotansky in two sequels, Mad Max 2, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, and was replaced recently for Mad Max Fury Road. Max, a police officer in a future Australia, is experiencing social collapse due to war and a critical resources shortage. In the first film, his wife and child are murdered by a vicious biker gang. Max sets out for revenge and becomes a drifter alone in a post-apocalyptical wasteland. As Australia dissolves further into savagery, the skilled warrior of the road finds himself helping pockets of civilization, usually initially for his own self-interest, but motivation to do good always seems to get into the way. I was introduced to Mad Max through the second film, Mad Max 2, on home release. Yeah, me too. I hadn't seen the first film. And I had to backtrack to go and watch that. And I think it's because the second film was the one that got the wider release um, in like the US and then Europe as a result. The first film kind of went under the radar for a lot of people. And to talk about the franchise as a whole, the first film is what I consider the only true story of Max. And I'm not trying to say that there's really a road warrior out there in the Australian outback ramming into cars, bikes and fighting with men in gimp suits and flying gyrocopters. Now, what I'm saying is the first film is the only part of the series that is realistic and restrained to some kind of grounded setting. And I see the other films not necessarily as actual representations of things in that storyline's time frame, but as mythical interpretations in the same way that we tell legends of King Arthur or Robin Hood, that Max is a mythical figure in this apocalyptic wasteland that other people talk about. And the second and third film in particular convey that one because they're both told from the viewpoints of survivors that he's helped. So you could look at these films. If you watch all these films together, you will notice continuity errors, plot points that don't quite match up to previous films. But I can forgive them simply because these are mythical hero of the Wasteland's adventures told from different perspectives. Even Fury Road. Max is only a minor figure in Fury Road because it's Furiosa's story. And it's more, even though it's got a voiceover by Max that starts it and ends it, I see it as Max telling the story of a new hero of the Wastelands, him telling the story of Furiosa. So there'll, again, be embellishments around the story. Now, should we go through each of the films in in particular? I mean, you've mentioned the first film being a low-budget production. And, you know, I've said that it's the one that's more grounded and real. And it is. And when I finally got round to watching the first film, a few years after I'd seen the second film, because the second film was... It was quite iconic in its look and visuals. Yeah. The rawness of the first film initially put me off. It felt yeah. cheap. It was it was almost caught up in that whole video nasty kind of look because it, yeah. it's visceral, it's um it, it is really cheap. It doesn't have the expanse that the second film just took off with. This was still, as you said, a quite a realistic setting. It was uh, uh, inspired by the uh, oil crisis of, of 1973, and that's kind of where the story is. Society's breaking down. There's murder and revenge. There are, are road gangs, and, and Max is a cop. Uh, and after, and it's a, it's a typical revenge story. After killing his wife and child, Max goes and hunts them down. And, and that's pretty much it. That where it went from there was quite extraordinary, a huge leap in, in the direction that, that the movie went into. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, for the, for the long time, because it was such a cheap movie, it was the biggest top-grossing Australian film and also held the record in the Guinness Book of Records for decades as the most profitable film ever created. Yeah, it's through the revisits to it over the years that I've 
become more invested. That you say that the basic setup is that his family is killed and he goes on a revenge streak, and that is literally the last twenty minutes of the film. Yeah, all of the rest of that is the slow build up. You do get to see some carnage and mayhem, and you get introduced to Max as one of the police enforcers and the rest of the crew that he works with. But it takes its time to really set it up bit by bit, so that when his family are killed. It is a shock and it comes yeah. out of nowhere more or less. And you, it's quite, it's one of those moments that you just, you, you'd always hear how like kids, they, they don't kill kids on screen in films because, uh, oh, it's so shocking. But on films that it does it, such as this and such as we've already talked about it in a deep dive way in the past, Assault on Precinct 13, killing a kid provides such an impact yeah. that it really, by that point of the film, if you're not invested and that doesn't invest you in Max's plight and revenge, for that last 20 minutes, then you're just dead to me. And you ju- you just should not watch films ever again. <laughs> it shocked. It drew me in. And I rewatched Mad Max last week, during my week off. And I love it more and more. Every time I rewatch it, I love the character building. I love the slow build. I appreciate the cheapness of it a lot more. But in amongst the cheapness, there's the fact that the carnage is all real. And this is something yeah. that's stuck throughout the whole franchise, is that the cars are real cars. The carnage is done. With Mad Max itself, they only had a small number of cars, so they had to make sure that every stunt counted. And every time that a car flips and trashes, that's that car completely wasted and they've not got a replacement to swap it with. So they had to get everything right. And when you look at it from that point of view, you can see how well-crafted and thought out and planned every element of this film was. For such a low-budget film, this is a heck of an achievement. I mean, before we, we get into talking about where Mad Max went, I think it's worth talking about George Miller, who was uh, initially a co-director on the initial films. And he was a he was a doctor in Sydney. He worked in a hospital emergency room where he saw a, a load of injuries and deaths due to types depicted in the film. Uh, he'd witnessed many car accidents growing up in rural Queensland and lost at least three friends to accidents as teenagers. He met amateur filmmaker... Byron Kennedy at a summer film school in 71 and two produced a short film, Violence in the Cinema Part One, which was streamed at a number of film festivals. And this led them into putting together this idea of Mad Max. Now, both of them were very, very raw filmmakers. They, As we said, they didn't come from a filmmaking background. They threw together an idea. They worked with uh, screenwriter James McClausland to develop the story of Mad Max and produce, as you said, a, a basically a, a z movie throwaway mm. movie but i think the fact that it had so much imagination in it especially with working with such a little amount of money uh having a charismatic star like mel gibson who was only seen in a in a couple of low low budget australian uh, uh australian movies and went on to such greater things and as i said the, the biggest shocker about mad max for me is where it went once we got onto mad max 2 and all of a sudden, the road warrior himself is confronted with bondage-wearing biker and buggy gangs with spiked metal beasts of road machines in a battle for fuel in this fallen society. Whereas Mad Max, the first film, was set just on the brink of the fall of civilization. This is well and truly within it. Now, this Mad Max 2 is one where I have to once again mention that I see each of these individual films from the second one onwards 
as someone's retelling of events through their perspective with some embellishments. And this, the, the, the bondage punks and the style of the villains and the vehicles, I put down to childish imaginations because this is an old man who was a child at the time of the events, retelling the events. And boy, was a feral child. So he wouldn't have been quite keen on understanding everything that's going on. So he's made a lot of embellishments around it. You know, the stories he's telling is clearly exaggerated by his memories. The good guys dress in white or cream colours, except for Max, because he's an unknown figure. The bad guys have weird masks, spiked leather bondage clothes, and drive cars built out of Satan's Meccano. And I put it as similar to, like, when you tell your mates about that time you got in a fight on a night out, but realise that the reality of the story, you were beaten up by a girl and ended up a bloody mess on the floor, wasn't that impressive. So all of a sudden, 14 bouncers are added to the mix, and you definitely took most of them out, but one of them sucker punched you in the end. Yeah, that's what Mad Max 2 is. It's this old guy recounting the story, but realising that a scuffle at a petrol station wasn't that impressive, so he adds in and embellishes, and it creates the myth of Max. That's my perspective. It's not anything journalized but that's how i see these films and that's how i love to enjoy them i can appreciate appreciate the more ridiculous aspects of these latter two films and they do get ridiculous because i see it as embellished mythical adventures the second film the look the reason why i i went to the second film as the first film that i watched is when it came out on vhs those images to do with the film drew you in what on earth is this masked masked guy yelling through like a speaker at people like holding fuel what's going on wow look at the car look at that car that that car the engine sticking out of the front of that car what this it looks amazing and you had to watch it and you did. from the offset max 2 packs a punch oh it, it's a fuel driven movie in every single way what it also did is it set a style this film has been uh, influenced to the post-apocalyptic films ever since. Yeah. There was a whole slew of movies that kind of looked like Mad Max the Road Warrior. It set a standard for, for those kind of action movies and and that kind of look. And um, I saw it again recently, and it is, it's a, it's a beautiful-looking film. Dean Semler, the cinematographer, mm. just uses widescreen to, to give the film uh, an epic quality. You know, uh, it, uh, for a long time, it was Australia's biggest box office success, and deservedly so. It's an amazing-looking film. Gibson is incredible in it. Doesn't have a lot to say, but in reprising the role of Max, at this stage in the character's life, he's a, he's a hardened man who's got to rediscover who he is and rediscover a little bit of humanity mm. as he helps the settlers, and it's, it's, it's an amazing film. It's important how reluctant Max is to get involved in other people's disputes. By this point, and through the later films, he's a he's a lone survivor, and he's survived by being alone. He doesn't want to form connections and bonds with people. So we jump ahead four years to Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. So Beyond Thunderdome, the third instalment, again directed by George Miller, and this time Joe Ogilvy after the sad loss of Byron Kennedy, who was killed in a helicopter crash while uh, on a location scout for this film. And we get a very different kind of Mad Max than the previous two. Uh, one that isn't quite as mad. Well, definitely in the second half. But the first half isn't a typical Mad Max movie. Again, returning with Mel Gibson and Tina Turner along for the ride as well. Beyond Thunderdome is a bit of a mess. Let's just get it out of the way. It's a bit of a mess. It's, it's kind of like two different story ideas mashed into one unconvincing film. But it's a film that... 
stands up to the reviewing because I remember when the first came out and I watched it and I was like, oh, oh, I wasn't that, oh, I didn't like that. But it's not as bad as memories told me and revisits to it. There's a lot to enjoy in there. Yeah. When I say, when they say there's two stories, there's the Barter Town aspect and there's the Plain Survivors aspect. It's two separate films just crammed together. Tina Turner's not that great, but the the great moments more than elevate it. I love some of the character designs. I love the design. I love the idea of Master Blaster. What a yeah. what a great combatant. I, again, I, I use my whole idea that these are warped tales told by someone because again, this is one that is uh, you find out that it's someone retelling the story of this. And I see it that this person was possibly getting drunk with his mates when he was telling the story. And so I can I can accept the fact that it doesn't quite work overall. But it still looks great. Yeah, I mean the Thunderdome sequences are absolutely, yeah. uh, absolutely fantastic. You know, the again we'd reached that sort of strange point where bands like Duran Duran were using Mad yeah. Mike's <laughs> imagery, and and they were feeding in on themselves, and 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 it became such a, a look of an era to a degree. Whenever you thought of the future worlds, you you thought to Mad Max. Yeah, but it's the second half of the movie which sort of drags it down a little bit, which is. Gibson and, and those kids. It's because the first half of it, with the like Thunderdome aspect and Barter Town, has so much energy, excitement, peril, thrill, and packs a huge punch. It's loaded to the front end of the film, which means the back end of the film feels like a setup for something. Maybe if it was the other way round and they had it done the slow build using the second part of the story first, it might have worked better. But it is just the fact that it, it drops off in that last last half hour in particular that left audiences a bit cold by the end of it. And then we jump ahead 20 years until we see Max again, returning for Mad Max Fury Road, along in development. Uh, at some points, it looked like it was never going to happen, including during production as the uh, film swapped from Australia to be finished off in Nambia. A recasting of Max, uh, a lot of difficulties from what I believe behind the scenes. Uh, let's just say, as our two stars didn't really get along. Yeah, they, they've it's been it's been covered in detail in the behind the scenes book uh, with Theron herself saying that maybe maybe she needs to own the fact that she wasn't the easiest to work with. But they both had different approaches to the craft of acting, and they were very conflicting. At the same time, however, with the end result, you can't tell that there's that conflict. Yeah, it's it's an interesting take. Again, uh, Max in this one is a, is almost a secondary character, uh, and as we see, there's going to be an offshoot film from this, which we'll mention. Um, it was a long time in development. Mel Gibson was now considered too old for the role, which was a little bit disappointing. Uh, but also keeping in mind how Gibson's star has been tarnished yeah. over the last few years. There was a time Robert Downey Jr. was thought of as uh, as to be included in the movie. As what role, we don't know. But to say we had to wait 20 years, we got another iconic Mad Max movie. And there's so much iconic in here. The design of the, the tribes have now mutated further, literally. That now the, there's some kind of plague or a radiation of impact on all of the world. And the domain has now been set up. And you've got King Morton Joe, played by Hugh Keysburn, who played Toe Cutter in the first film. And he's got boils and warts and, you know, he, he struggles to breathe. And all of his siblings are the same. But he has five perfect wives that he's using as breeding stock 
to try to create his next next generation of like the, the bloodline while he rules over his empire the only person to have control of the water supply in this area. He trades that water with the neighbouring towns, which supply ammunition or they supply fuel. And it's during one of the trade runs that Furiosa, played by Charlize Theron, breaks off from the route for some unknown reason. And you discover that it's because she's helping sneak his five wives away from him and get them to freedom. But Max is caught up in this because Max just accidentally ends up stumbling into things by getting captured. And what, this is one thing that I love about the Mad Max films. He constantly gets beaten down. Yeah, he does. He always starts the beginning of the film having had a good kick in before he kind of <laughs> revives himself and, 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 and decides that he's going to become part of part of the scene, part of the story. And he proper gets a beating in this one. He not only gets beaten, he gets, get, gets hooked up as a blood bag for a war boy. War boys are the the drivers and fighters who worship a Morton Joe. And Nicholas Holt plays Nux, the key war boy that we're going to follow. And he's the one that Max's O, o negative blood group is going to be fueling to keep him alive because they're all close to dying and they're waiting to prove their worth on the battlefield and die like for the mighty Valhalla. And he, he gets strapped onto the front of a car in a dust storm and he, he gets dragged, he gets beaten. He proper takes an absolute pasting through this film. He does. Uh, <laughs> and to some extent, the true star of the film is uh, Fury Rosa, played by brilliantly by Charlize Theron. And yeah. she is the dramatic centre and, and heart of the movie. Uh, her character demonstrates a, a physicality that... It's seldom seen from a female character, even today. And I know there's been there was a lot of critique about the about the wives, but it's Furiosa's movie, and, and so much yeah. so that we, we're going to see a continuation of that character in a prequel. Uh, and to some extent, Max is is the backseat of this. Uh, we've got to talk a little bit about the casting of Max. It's okay. There were other actors um, mentioned before it went to Tom Hardy, and Tom Hardy doesn't really impress on this. He's constant. He's got a good physical presence. He doesn't have a lot to say. I mean, Max never did, but he's certainly sidelined in this movie. And I, I did find that a little bit of a disappointment. What I didn't find disappointing is the visceral car chases. This film is just mm. one long car chase. Yeah, It's one of the greatest action films ever ever shot, let's be honest. Yeah, from start to finish. Again, there's a, a load of practical effects. The cars are real cars. There's a marvelous scene with the what the guys on the poles swinging back and forwards to jump onto the truck, and that was done with stunt performers and like acrobats. Yes, there's some CGI embellishment around the edge, more for the landscapes, the scenery, the the impressive shot of the approaching storm, like dust storm, is yeah. just a jaw dropping visual a visual scene. But everything design work on the vehicles is great, from the spikes like Volkswagen Beetle kind of hedgehog cars too <laughs> and it has to be mentioned a great big drumming and amp rack with a bungee cord held guitarist with a mask on strumming away yes whereas armies going into battle in the past had buglers or beasts of drums going on here we have the rock equivalent as it's basically an mobile concert <laughs> parading into battle and it's just impressive the scale the scope the design the way that it fleshes out the world and the way that this world has not only like fallen apart but it's twisted and distorted so much now there's so much that fiori road brought into it that you go wow miller spent 
20 years between these two films, working out a way to make this relevant and beautiful again and make us want more. And boy, we want more. Yes, we've got the Furiosa prequel, but we still want to see more Mad Max films set after this. We want to see more of how this world exists as it does. Well, apparently Fury Road had enough script for two movies and there was talk of Mad Max The Wasteland as a working title for the next possible series. A a bit of a fallout between Miller and Warner Brothers sort of pushed that back, but there are still considered to be at least another two Mad Max movies or however long between films this time. I just hope it's not 20 years, but it seems that, that Miller does want to go back and explore more about the Mad Max world. We'll have to wait and see. Anna Taylor-Joy has uh, joined the cast of portraying a young Furiosa. Chris Hemsworth and Tom Burke are to star in that in unspecified roles, but we'll just wait and see. And while I'm looking mm. forward to that, as you, as you said, Andy, I want to see another Max film. And it doesn't matter, to be honest, who plays Max, because it's the character and, as you said, the legend that yeah. is the road warrior. That is why we stick around. Uh, before we drop off, you mean you mentioned how great Charlie's Theron was in Fury Road, but Nicholas Holt, yeah, yeah. as Nux, was he's the heart of the film because he's a war boy wanting to die uh, on the battlefield and prove himself to Immortal Joe and gain immortality through it, who starts to realize that the society that he's been brought up in is wrong and marvelous. It is a film that every time I rewatch it, I'm just straight in and I'm hooked and I'm caught up and captivated by the whole thing. And I want to rewatch it again now, even though we only watched it last week. That's how much I enjoy this film. But I will not be watching the Black and Chrome edition. Which we mentioned in an earlier show. Because <laughs> Andy's got a, got a negative opinion of Black and Chrome editions. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's Mad Max as a film series. And if we want to watch them, where can we find them? You can only at this point in time find Fury Road on the streaming services. I believe it's on Sky and Now TV. The others you will have to pick up and purchase, either through digital, available on all digital stores for rental or purchase, or get yourself the Blu-rays and treat yourself. We'll be back next week with another deep dive. Which will be the long-awaited Bookaroo Banzai. <laughs> Where have you found it? It's available to rent for about three quid on most services. So now it's time for reviews. And of course, there's only one real review that we can start off with. Andy, what else have you seen other than the Batman? <laughs> the only other thing that I've seen of note is Night Ride. So shall we start with Night Ride and then we'll work to the Batman? Yeah. Once we do this, you'll be out. I'll be out. We'll both be out. I'm going to be there. 11.15. 50 keys. A minute late. The dealers are off. Just so Dutch. What does it mean? You're just picking up a bag, in and out. Time is luck. Talk to me. I've got a tail on me. It's all gone wrong. Now the boyer's pulled out. You know what's going to happen if we don't get that money. We can turn this around. Find another buyer. Call Graham. Call Lefty. Call Magic Shop. i got a lot of product. I need to shift it on. I need to shift it on now. I know that you're going to do the job for the people you love. Tell them to call me direct. I'm ready to go here. Okay, okay. (laughs) It's not personal. It's just business. 
So in Night Ride, we find a small-time criminal doing one last job before they get out, only for that job to go south pretty early on. It's a well-worn cliche, but it doesn't stop filmmakers from trying to play with the concept and get something a little bit fresher out of it. Night Ride is a reasonably decent example of this primarily because of the manner of the presentation of the story. Mo Dunford plays Budge, the guy who's planning a last job to pay off his debts and get out. The film picks up events on the night of his last job and then plays out in real time as he sets off in his car to make the deal. In a single-shot format, we are stuck with Budge as he drives around, making calls to those involved in the deal and to other important people in his life, with a reminder of the ticking of time popping up every now and then. We only get to meet a small few other characters in person, but we get to hear and know all we need to know about the rest through the constant switching of calls. As the job that's planned goes awry, tensions mount, and whilst there's some contrivances in the plot towards the end, with the final act serving up trope after trope, by that point we've spent such an intense time with Budge and him alone that it's hard not to feel invested in his journey. Sharply plotted, albeit a tad derivative, it's the single shot take approach that gives this film some weight, making for quite a decent way to pass a very short running time. Okay, that sounds interesting. I guess what everybody is looking forward for is our review of the Batman. Let's play a game. What's black and blue and dead all over? If you are justice, please do not lie. I'm here to unmask the truth about this city. You're part of this too. Who am I part of this? Set two years into his tenure as the Batman, Bruce Wayne is tracking down a serial killer who calls himself the Riddler uh, and targeting high-profile figures in Gotham City in the run-up to the mayoral elections. With the help of Lieutenant James Gordon and a cocktail waitress stroke cat burglar, Selina Kyle, the Batman must unravel clues and stop a terrorist attack on the city. So, Andy, uh, you and I haven't had an opportunity yet to talk about the Batman. We, I, I guess we've been both sort of holding back. I'm not sure whether we are going to agree on this one. I feel that we're possibly going to be in the same ballpark, but one of us has a lot more love for this film than the other. So you go first. Well, let's talk about it together. Tell me what you thought. This, for me, is extremely high ranking in DC films of all time. When I've added it onto my letterboxed list, and it's a five-star film for me, I loved it. The, the three hours felt like three hours, but like a good three hours. It felt to me, I've done comparisons to... If you have a TV miniseries that you binge watch all together, that's how the structure of this film worked. And I loved every aspect of it. I loved the dark detective noir aspect. I loved the rain-soaked streets capturing that essence. It was seven done with capes. The cast are all fantastic. There's a few contrivances in plot that I can overlook because I was caught up in it. Like, for example... Why did he jump in the Batmobile at that point? Because no one else was going towards a car. What made him decide to go and jump in a car at that point? Don't know, but I <laughs> yeah, don't I care that. because it gave us a moment when the Batmobile screeches to life like a banshee from hell and chilled me to the bone. And there's things like that that made me love it. It felt like a comic book movie and I'm not in the Marvel kind of like bright colors, etc. A proper Batman comic book movie. There's not a lot of action, 
because comic books, believe it or not, people who don't read comic books don't have action on every page. Sometimes you have three or four issues with nothing happening because it's called story, dialogue and characterization. And that's what this film delivers. It delivered great story. It showed a Batman who isn't Bruce Wayne anymore. He's so obsessed with his vengeance that he only lives as Batman. And there's even a throwaway line when he is going out as Bruce Wayne. I was like, oh, is Bruce Wayne actually going to be making an appearance for the first time? And it's because he's so obsessed with his vengeance. This film, like you say, it's this year two of Batman. It smartly avoids doing the origin story because we don't need to see another slow motion sequence with a gunshot and pearls dropping to the floor as a traumatized young Bruce Wayne looks on because we've seen that multiple times. We saw it twice in Zack Snyder's own film. We didn't need it twice in that film. People know the origin of Batman. Instead, we're jumping into he's now established, but he's still not accepted. But he's obsessed with his vengeance and he needs to learn to open up again. I loved it. I'm going to tell you what I liked. I liked um, Matt Reeves. I like Matt Reeves as a director. I think he, he knows how to put the camera to make an interesting skewed vision of the story that he's telling. He did the same in his Planet of the Apes uh, movies. You know, his Gotham City is slick with rain. It's slick with sleaze. It's got a, a weariness to it. It's not quite the realistic world that we had in Christopher Nolan's Batman, nor is it the uh, hyper-real version in Tim Burton's Batman. It's somewhere in between. It's sort of, a um, again, a city out of time. It could be the 70s. It could be present day. I have to admit one thing that I really loved about it. Okay, two things. And that's the casting choices. Mm -hmm. Firstly, I think Robert Patterson, for me, is the best Batman since Michael Keaton. My love for Keaton is, is has been expressed many times on the show. In the Mask, uh, many times, looked like a, a Neil Adams drawing. Looked right. like John Byrne's interpretation of the Batman. Uh, I thought he, he, while excessively brooding throughout the film, I thought he brought a quality to Batman, and especially the detective quality, which had only ever been hinted at, really, in the Tim Burton film. Uh, and that I really liked. Zoe Kravitz stole every scene that she was in, which is a formidable task, because I think Patterson was fantastic, but Zoe Kravitz was was amazing in it. Uh, a physical presence as well as, as giving the film some much-needed heart. Uh, I think Jeffrey Wright, again, is one of those actors, whoever, whatever film he's in, whatever story he's a part of, he had, he had some credence and he had some wonderful credibility to it. And it was nice to see that, that Batman didn't work alone, that he had this little team around him, especially in Gordon, because they are so related within the books. Uh, and and that, was, that was something that came through with Nolan uh, and the interpretation by Gary Oldman. Uh, of James Gordon, but they they worked as a team, and I really liked that element. What I found with this film is for everything that was good about it, and there's a lot that was good about it, there were moments that, that felt clunky. There were moments that sort of let down the good work of the great scenes for me. I thought three hours, while it flew by, I was never bored, uh, even though I do have a massive problem with the last act. I thought the film wouldn't have suffered if it was 20 minutes shorter. I felt it lacked humour, even though there were occasional scenes that made me smile and therefore sometimes made it a little bit plodding, a little bit dreary. The fantastic car chase was let down strangely by Matt Reeves' choices of where to put the camera. And at times I wanted, 
I wanted the film to open up a little bit. It was very claustrophobic, and especially in that car chase, because I, I needed a sense of geography. I needed to know where I was. I needed to know what was going on. And, and I found that problematic. You're going to disagree, aren't you, with that point? Yeah, I thought that that was a fresh way to do a car chase. Because for those who've not seen the film, and it's not a spoiler to say that the car chase is basically filmed from the perspective of cameras strapped on the side of each vehicle. So you don't get to see the, the full streets. You just get to see the, for me, it, it captured intensity of being chased. When you had from Penguin's point of view, you could just see behind him and occasionally see the Batmobile skirting into view. And from Batman's point of view, you occasionally saw that. And it drew me in more. It it turned what would have just been a generic car chase finishing with a catching like explosion, which we've seen in the trailer, to something a lot more intense and gripping. I was there in it without it having to resort to shaky cameras and swift edits. I, I, I did like the choices he made. I just felt that I, I wanted to open up. I, there was a, a problem I had with the film, which was, was a sense of geography uh, within it, and it <laughs> which we'll, we'll, you will mention in a little while. As I said, I thought Patterson was great. I thought he did a very different and unique take on Batman. Uh, and, and I said, next to Keaton, he's my favourite Batman. I liked it. Don't get me wrong. I liked it. What I do think you could have done with this film is take Batman out of it and you would have still had a good thriller. You would have had a Seven-esque movie, a very David Fincher-style thriller that Batman, whether he was in it or not, wouldn't have changed the dynamic of the film. And that kind of bothered me a little bit. I have a problem, and it's the same problem I have with Nolan's Batman. We can't have extravagant villains like a Mr. Freeze or a Clayface in in this style of Batman, which you could have done with Burton's world. I think when it's too close to our reality, then you've got to ground the villains as much as you've got to ground Batman. I thought the the flying bat suit was a little disappointing. Uh, And again, it, it sort of threw me out of the film. Now, what I did like about it, other than the casting, and I must mention Colin Farrell's unbelievable transformation, uh, not only using prosthetics as the Penguin, but also the fact that, boy, did he bring something unusual to the character that was that was very clever, uh, that you, yeah. you can't even see Colin Farrell in that role. What I did like about it is this is a Batman for this generation. And it said a lot about the world that we do live in. You know, uh, there's a, a line about elitism and white privilege in it, which I thought was was very clever and brought us a sort of up-to-date post-Trumpian Batman. So, yes, I liked it. I thought it was, well, not totally a radical change from uh, Nolan's Batman. I thought this was it was great to see the Dark Knight detective element being played up. I think it liked humour. I think the script's clunky. I think the third act is a bit odd. There was some odd choices that, that ended up not being particularly... Ultimately, it paid off with what it, it it finally showed what the arc of Batman was. But I thought for all that setup, it felt rushed and weak. But I, that's not to say I didn't have a good time with it and that I didn't not like it. I just liked it, but it had some problems. I wanted to love it, but I liked it. Uh, with regards to casting, you've already mentioned like Zoe Kravitz, who I've got so much love for. Everything that she does is just golden as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Paul Dano as um, the Riddler a Zodiac-inspired take on it, is chilling and menacing behind a mask. 
the same way that Batman is. But I want to give a shout out to John Turturro. Oh yeah, who kind of like as as disappeared into the sidelines and made some bad career choices over the past decade and a half. But in this showcases in the role of Carmine Falcone, why he should should still be cast in as many films as possible. He was marvelous in it. He was chilling, menacing, but also subdued at the same time. Loved it. You mentioned geography, and we elicited a chuckle because yes. There's one element of the film that kept breaking me out. And I can't fault the film for it because you've got to, if you're going to shoot and use locations, you have to use somewhere. But being from Liverpool, <laughs> it's impossible for me to look at something that's supposed to represent a part of Gotham without going, that's Liverpool Lime Street and that's St. George's Hall. Because that's where... One of the key moments of the film takes place. There's also shots of Liverpool Museum. There's the top of the Liver building is used on top of another building completely yeah. randomly. And yes, there's some great CGI mapping of like alternate backdrops to give it more presence as part of Gotham. But every time that a location from Liverpool came up, I was instantly going, that's Liverpool. And that just kind of broke the illusion a bit for me. But that's not a problem of the film. That's a problem because... I know these places inside out. And I'm sure that people who live in Glasgow felt the same on the Glasgow shot scenes. And I'm sure that every time that a film has been shot in a location that you know, you will be broken through the illusion when it gets to it. It's a great use. And I know why they used Liverpool, because Liverpool has such beautiful Gothic architecture throughout. Yeah. And it's utilised perfectly to represent a beautiful looking Gotham. It's how I envision Gotham to look. And I think it gets it perfectly right. So, yeah, it broke the illusion for me, but it's not a negative thing that it did. I do also want to mention, and I mention a lot of times with films, how important the score is. And the score by longtime collaborator with Reeves, uh, Michael Giacchino, it more than complements the somber tone of the film. And it's a different approach for a Batman film. It's not like sweeping arcs and everything. And it's resonating around that same tempo of uh, Nirvana's Something in the Way, which is very prominent within the film. And I think it really does deliver something that we've not had from a Batman film yet. I'm interested to see where this new direction goes. I'm pretty sure with the box office figures over the weekend that we're going to see more. I want to see Patterson return yes. as Batman. Absolutely. I thought he was a tremendous, tremendous force for it. And I'm interested. As I said, I just wish I'd loved it some more. That's it for the reviews. Uh, Andy, anything out? over the next week that you think we should all be watching or are the cinemas going to be quiet due to the bat? Well, next weekend, there's no real big releases coming out of the cinemas. Red Rocket and Sideshow are the only films that are on the radar there. They're not going to be big hits because the Batman's going to dominate the box office for the next two weeks. Um, over on streaming, for lovers of mayhem in cars, uh, Fast 9 finally lands on Now TV and Sky. Uh, give it a miss. Uh, <laughs> Malignant also lands on Now TV and Sky. Thoroughly recommended when I spoke about it last year on the show. It was a huge thumbs up from me, so get that watched. What I will be watching myself is over on Netflix, the Ryan Reynolds film, The Adam Project, where he plays a time-travelling fighter pilot who teams up with his 12-year-old self. Now, the, the trailer for this showed so much heart, so I am well and truly on board for it. And Hail Caesar, the Coen brothers' much underrated slice Love of Hollywood it. life, lands on Netflix yeah. this week. Well worth checking out. If you missed it because you heard lots of negative things, get it watched. It's a lot better than what people tell you. On Amazon, season two of Upload, the Robbie Amell starring comedy from Greg Daniels returns. And on Disney Plus, we have 
that this irks me because I will watch it, but I'll be so disappointed that I'm watching it on Disney Plus. And that's Turning Red, Pixar's latest entry. Looks amazing. Should have got a cinematic release. Should. Uh, I guess we'll be talking about that next week. Yes. And talking of next week, that kind of brings us to the end of this week. But before we go, and we do this every single week, and that's our neat things. Stuff that Andy and I have enjoyed, whether it be a film, TV series, something we've ate, something we've played. As long as it's a neat thing, we're going to talk about it. Andy? So you remember last week when I talked about the app that I was using to get money to put towards something that was going to be my neat thing this week? Yeah. Now we come to the reveal. Ah. The reveal is Gran Turismo 7. So Gran Turismo 7 landed this week. It landed Friday morning. In fact, it landed midnight Friday. And I was sat on my console whilst other people were off watching midnight shows of Batman. I was sat on my PlayStation 5 watching the countdown timer tick to midnight so I could press start and play what is a beautiful entry in one of my favorite racing series of all time. I have owned every Gran Turismo game across all the PlayStation consoles. And I'm not a great player of driving games. I am not one of these ones who can lap, like get lap records it's against terrible, everyone. I'm terrible at driving games. But I enjoy them. I have so much fun with them. I'm a, not a bad racer. I can definitely like come within that. In, in a race of 20 people, I'll generally come within like the top, between like, 8 to 10. But I love the immersive nature of the Gran Turismo series. And while sport was fun, sport lacked a few things which Gran Turismo have brought back. And that is the tuning, the changing of engines, the switching of gear ratios, every aspect that makes it more than just a racing game and a driving simulator instead. And although I know jack about how to actually take an engine apart and rebuild it, on the Gran Turismo games, I know how to channel the best and get the best uh, aerodynamic flow ratios and how to get me brakes like perfectly matched so I can slide around corners without skidding out of control, how to get the power hungry engines to not over throttle. For some reason, when it comes to gaming with cars, I know a lot about cars in real life. I know nothing except for if someone said to me like, Oh, what did, did you see that car that went past? I was like, what one is like, Oh, well that one there. Yeah. What type was it? Uh, it was a blue one. And that, that's my description of cars. I don't know anything about them, but on the Gran Turismo games, I love them. And this is a polished game. I'm playing it on the PlayStation 5, which has the haptic feedback on the controllers. You can tell when you're on tarmac. You can tell when you're going over minor bumps in the road. You can tell when you're on sand. You've got different feels for everything and you get pressure resistance from the pedals. So when I'm going full pelt towards a corner and I forget to brake and try to skid slide around it, that accelerator paddle is going to push back on me because it knows I should. It knows that I can't control the car anymore, and you can feel the lack of control going on. Gran Turismo Seven. It was a well worth investment purchase, and I am cool. loving it. Within the first few hours, I'd already driven seventy miles in the game, <laughs> and I'm 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 now up to the stage that I've unlocked the custom modifications so i can skin the exterior of my car so I've, de- I've i've done my first skinning and of course it's a volkswagen beetle and it's got a french kind of flag stripes across the top of it and a number 53 on the side because of course i've made herbie in the game um i know you're watching this because uh, we, we've talked about it off air we, we've said that apple tv plus is more about quality than quantity and there's a a lot that's dropped over the last couple of weeks on apple and a couple of things still to catch up with for me 
it's been the after party. So following a high school reunion, a group of former friends converge at the home of Xavier, played in full Justin Bieber-esque fashion by Dave Franco, who was a celebrity at his own after party. When he's found dead, Detective Danner must determine which of the partygoers is the killer. But everyone has a different account of the events. So what you've got is a comedic half-hour show over seven episodes, which is a whodunit as to who murdered Xavier. What makes this show special is Christopher Miller and Phil Lord. Yes, those the producers behind Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Those behind 21 Jump Street, the Lego movie. And they brought to the party, the after party, if you will, their own unique style. And boy, does that give it something original. Because every episode that each of the potential murderers recounts is done in their own cinematic adventure. So, for instance, we get one which is a Joel Silver-esque 80s high-budget cop-type thriller look we've got one which is a high school movie we've got one which is animated we've got one which is a a bit of a tribute to hamilton and a musical and that's what makes it work it's not only that it's a, a good murder mystery and because it is it will keep you guessing as to who did it right to the very end and strangely enough it's also very clear but it's also a lot of fun outrageously funny a great setup a bit of a tonal roller coaster Uh, that one that you'll hang on to because it's absolutely worth it. It's good fun. And Lord and Miller know how to deliver not only great and unique looking films, but now they're in the TV business as well. And that's it for this week. Uh, We'll be back again next week with another show. Andy, uh, as ever, always a pleasure. Aye, definitely. Yeah, the the show next week is going to be very streaming heavy, isn't it? Because there's, there's a lot on streaming that we will be talking about. So we'll see you again next week. But before we go... How much more can they take from me?